Hello and welcome to the Beijing to Britain podcast with your co-host Sam Hogg and Steve Lynch. We aim to examine and interrogate information in the UK-China bilateral, speaking to key policymakers, thinkers, and individuals in this space. In each episode, we'll discuss the recent events, activities, and happenings between the UK and China, what that means, and what's going on with some experts, as well as look at some parliamentary output. I know it's not usual for a prime minister to come back in this way, but I believe in public service. The prime minister asked me to do this job, and it's a time where we have some daunting challenges as a country: the conflict in the Middle East, the war in Ukraine, and, of course, I hope that six years as prime minister, eleven years leading the Conservative Party, gives me some useful experience and contacts and relationships and knowledge. That I can help the Prime Minister to make sure we build our alliances, we build partnerships with our friends, we deter our enemies, and we keep our country strong. That's why I'm doing the job, and I'm delighted to accept. I got a voice message from a Mr. Hogg this morning, and he messaged to say that Cameron is in as Foreign Secretary, and I was racking my brains. And I was thinking, what MP? What Secretary of State? What Minister is known by Cameron? Cameron something. I just couldn't think of anyone. And then turned on the news and it was David Cameron. And I honestly cannot believe that we're here. Honestly, Sam, what year is this? <laughs> we're living in 2023. We've got David Cameron, the former prime minister, back as foreign secretary. We've also got Tony Blair back in as well, hmm. uh, working behind the scenes and working for many countries. But let's just move on from that. <laughs> um, I honestly thought we'd escaped the words golden era well it's back and it's certainly back with a vengeance and that's why we're here we're here today to record our emergency podcast on essentially what is the cabinet reshuffle so let's just quick to quickly take a stock of what's happened mm-hmm. uh, there's been a major cabinet reshuffle we knew it was coming but we didn't know it was going to be maybe let's call it this seismic mm. um, there's four top jobs in the uk government the prime minister the chancellor the Home Secretary and the Foreign Secretary, and the Foreign Secretary and the Home Secretary have essentially uh, been replaced. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's just start at the um, last week. Suella Bravman, who was the Home Secretary, was she essentially said some pretty provocative statements, which left the government or left Rishi Sunak in a pretty dire situation. Let's just call it a lose 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 in regards to if he does remove her from position, he sacks her. There was essentially concerns that resignations would be flying in. There'd be a leadership contest, which there still might be between Rishi, Suella, uh, probably the outside favourite, uh, Kemi Badnock. Mm-hmm. Lose if he doesn't do anything. He's a weak leader. Uh, but what people didn't realise, he had a trump card. And it's a symbolic move. Uh, but he has brought back David Cameron as the foreign secretary. Symbolic in regards to he's moving away from the right wing of the party. He is a heavyweight. There's no doubt about that. But with that comes so much baggage. He is a deeply divisive person, despite being quite a centralist. So, Sam, straight over to you. If I said David Cameron, what's his legacy? What's the first things that comes to mind? So, obviously, we can't talk about David Cameron in the UK-China context without talking about the golden era. As every single listener here will know, but worth rehashing again for those who don't, the golden era was the David Cameron and his then Chancellor George Osborne approach to UK-China engagement. The idea was we're going to tighten our 
economic relationship with China. We're going to go massive business visits to China. We're going to take huge delegations of companies across. It even saw uh, George Osborne, when he was chancellor, deliver a speech in Xinjiang with a committee of northern business leaders. And culminated, I would say, in about 2015 with a state visit for Xi Jinping to the UK, where he had the red carpet literally rolled out for him. Uh, lots of pictures that emerged from that time, you know, uh, Aguero, she and David Cameron taking a selfie at Manchester City Stadium. Very weird. The pictures of them in the pub having a pint and fish and chips. Very much of an era that is a bygone era in Westminster. And I would go further to say that to refer to the golden era, the, the golden era has become a byword or a byword phrase for like a naivety with an approach to China within Westminster contemporary circles. So a, a pretty bizarre off the bingo card uh, return for the big the big DC. But this is also a great point. So Sam, we're recording this on Monday evening, emergency podcast, mm-hmm. as we've said, and we've asked lots of people to write in and give us questions to which we have. We're going to come to that. Tonight at Mansion House, there is a speech on foreign policy from Rishi Sunak. Last year, he heavily criticised <laughs> the golden era. Mm. He said it was naive ideas that came around the UK-China relationship specifically related to the golden era. So how on earth can he make this man now his foreign secretary, where he's going to have to deal with China? Mm-hmm. Uh, good question. I think we have to take a step back from the UK-China bilateral on that specific one, because I think the selling point, the USP for the David Cameron return, is that it does two things. First of all, it shores up the more moderate centrist Tories. I mean, there's a lot of Twitter... Uh, conversations and tweets flying about today from more moderate Tories who are like, great to see David back, you know, fantastic, et cetera, et cetera. And those who had left parliament. So that's the one side of it. And I think the other side of it is that apparently Cameron still polls quite well among conservative voters in the shires, people who might be edging towards voting for Starmer because they don't like Sunak or Braverman. And that's where Cameron adds value. Uh, There's also the third aspect to it, which I think is slightly overblown, but there's a lot of talk among diplomats here that David Cameron knows world leaders. He's got that in with various people. He's, he's run a government, all that sort of stuff. I, I'm more skeptical of that because the world has changed a lot since David Cameron was prime minister. And, you know, as you alluded to at the beginning, James cleverly arrived in that role as foreign secretary with a blank slate. No one could have pinned him down really on what his, his foreign policy views were. David Cameron arrives with a very non-blank slate. Depending on where you live in the world, you probably have very clear views of whether you think he was good or or not good at his job. And now he's doing that all under a a new prime minister. So interesting times, to say the least. And that's not even to say anything which we'll come on to about what he's been doing in the meantime since he left Downing Street with regards to China. I don't remember him particularly being a heavyweight foreign policy prime minister. Maybe the heavyweight stuff comes once he's left government. You know, he's had a lot of time. 2016, he's left government. He's had a lot of time. He's had... Lots of meetings with business leaders, prime ministers, global leaders. He's the meetings he's had, the money he's taken, who he's lobbied on behalf. There's a lot of question marks of that as him coming in as foreign secretary. There's, I would say, pros and cons to that. Um, one of the things I think we should just get in straight into, which is something that's been flagged multiple times as a question to us is around the Colombo Port City project Mm. in Sri Lanka. You were one of the first people in the Beijing to Britain uh, briefing to pick up on this, which made international news. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess the question is, what's his involvement? I mean, in regards to UK-China relations or what's his involvement post-Prime Minister in regards to foreign policy? And is that a conflict of interest now coming back into that position? 
Yeah. So I, I think just before I get into that, I would push back slightly on the on the foreign policy way you described him. I think he was a fairly interventionist uh, foreign policy prime minister. If you look at sort of some of the stuff he did in North Africa and the Middle East. But that being said, who knows what he's like now? And, and onto the sort of the, the Sri Lankan port, the, the way that that developed was I was about 15 pages deep in Google alerts. I saw an alert from David Cameron. I was like, what the hell is David Cameron doing in my very niche, very narrow search parameters? And it turned out that some local media in, in the Middle East had written about him speaking at this conference. And he was speaking in this conference on behalf of this new port they're building in Sri Lanka. And that port looks to be a BR, a Belt and Road Initiative project, right? So I was like, that's very odd, very strange. I flagged that within the Beijing to Britain ecosystem and it got picked up by the British media here and they run with it. And it's led to a lot of questions around what has Cameron been up to that it came to light a couple of months after the Intelligence and Security Committee, which is a very influential, very secretive committee that sits in Parliament. Its job is to audit and examine MI5, MI6, GCHQ, all the things that MPs aren't allowed to usually look at to keep them to account, basically, they had published a report on China. And in their report, they mentioned by name David Cameron three times. And one of the things they allege is that David Cameron was meant to be running this £1 billion fund, UK-China fund. And they basically allege that or, or position it. So it may have been that he took on that role to give cover to Chinese operations or like Chinese business in a way that the Chinese government is accused of doing often, like procuring former officials to add legitimacy to their, to their work. So the work he's been doing around China has been questionable in the eyes of sort of Westminster journalists and critics for a fairly long time since he left. Um, there's a story a couple of years ago about how he may have broken rules around lobbying the, the Treasury or the Chancellor on behalf of his UK China fund, which, by the way, never took off anywhere. It just uh, seems to have fallen to the side. But I would say that you'll hear, and we'll play a clip in a second of of one of them, many critics criticizing uh, Cameron's record outside of Downing Street after he left the job when it comes to China. But I think right now it's probably a good time to play that clip from IPAC co-chair Ian Duncan-Smith talking about exactly this issue. Are you offended at the fact that you aren't good enough to be Foreign Secretary? In fact, you and not any of your <laughs> colleagues in the House of Commons. He's had to go and find a Foreign Secretary who isn't even in the House of Lords to do the job. Is that not annoying for you? Well, I have one or two concerns. Let me say that I am sanctioned. I'm one of seven people in Parliament that are sanctioned by the Chinese government. We discovered through IPAC, the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, there was a genocide taking place in Xinjiang. People are literally being into forced labour, slave labour. Okay, that's why you couldn't be Foreign well, Secretary. Well, no, it's more than that. It's the fact that I, therefore, for being sanctioned, hounded by wolf warriors, etc., as are my colleagues, our sites are attacked. And then David Cameron is coming in, and I'm a little bit puzzled about this, because until recently it appears that he's being paid by the Chinese government to promote certain things to do with the government. I want to know, I'll be honest with you, why that's a conflict, and I want to know how that is to be settled, because we are under threat the whole time, mm -hmm. and we are members of the parliament. A couple mm -hmm. of people are in government, for God's yeah. sake. So this is a real question mark for me uh, about what is that conflict and how is that to be settled. And indeed, David Cameron was, was quite pro-China because I went on the plane with the him back in 2011 to Shanghai. That's right. Disaster. Ian Duncan-Smith there speaks for a lot of China hawks who are concerned about um, Cameron's return from that aspect there, from that angle. Well, I would say two things. First of all, Ian Duncan-Smith has been in this space long enough to be able to pronounce Xinjiang properly. That's just not good anymore. And second of all, it's the golden era, not the golden decade. And I've heard so many people who claim to know about this space personify it wrong over the last 24 hours. It is really simple and it undermines your discussion if you can't 
sort of characterize or talk about properly. Anyway, that those two minute details aside, Steve, I, I think it is worth dwelling on the golden era a bit because you were obviously working in China during the golden era. You were working for the British Chamber of Commerce out there, right? Yeah, absolutely. There was a tonal and mood shift in regards to how we were talking about, how we were engaging and how we were dealing with China. And you, you could feel it in regards to relations. You could feel it in regards to the, the experiences. You could, you, could, you could definitely sense it in regards to their rhetoric. And in regards to the trade figures, you could see it. I mean, there was just a dramatic uptick in um, trade and investment both ways. And that's because very, very strong signals was, was collaborating between business and government. And, you know, essentially they were singing from the same hymn sheet. So the amount of ministerial engagement that would be flowing both ways, the amount of business delegations that were flowing both ways really improved trade and relations. So it really was a golden era because you could kind of see from China where it was in, let's call it 2000, when it joined the WTO to then when it hit kind of post uh, financial crisis, then Cameron came in and sort of implemented the golden era, you know, trade figures just sort of astronomically increased. So it was generally working in that space. It was just a very strong time for engagement. It was a very strong time for kind of relations. That's a world away now, you know, genuinely, when we talk about the golden era, you know, which is ironic, we're becoming us back into this phasing, but it's like a I don't know, gold-plated, silver-plated, bronze-plated era. I mean, it, it's it's a world away, you know. The signals are not there. The rhetoric is not there. The trade and investment figures remain, but what they will look like in the future, it's unclear. China's obviously changed tact in regards to how they're dealing with foreign policy, how they're dealing with foreign nations. And so we look back now with hindsight, many people think that was the wrong strategy, but at the time, there was not many people calling against the golden era. There's a lot of people doubling down, a lot of businesses doubling down in regards to an investment and their engagement. I've always found it fascinating, having entered this conversation post-Golden Era, how much revisionist history is at play around people who say, oh, I was never involved in the gold. I, I never liked the idea of it, X, Y, Z. I, from, from my point of view and from reading the Hansard and what these people were saying, these MPs were saying and business were saying, that was not the prevailing view. That being said, there were clear criticisms of, even back then, China's crackdown on the Uyghur minorities in Xinjiang, the way that it was dealing with human rights campaigns within China, you know, people speaking out on freedom of speech issues. So, you know, as I referenced earlier on, George Osborne delivered a speech in Xinjiang talking about how northern businesses in England could link up with sort of Xinjiang regional businesses, that sort of thing. And that was criticized. But watching the archive footage today from 13, 10, 13 years ago, it was almost... I don't want to call it a joke in the way the presenters are asking, but they don't, t- they don't take it that seriously. They're, they're asking these businesses there, oh, well, do you think this is going to be expensive human rights? And they're saying, oh, you know, it's not really. Cameron's worked in PR before. He's really good at increasing these things like that. So I find the, the revisionist aspect to it very interesting because I think there were uh, a minority of voices who are very consistent, but a lot of people now are, are sort of washing their hands of it and saying, oh, I never was pushing for that engagement myself. I think that's a great point, Sam. And I think the revisionist hindsight aspect of this story is quite problematic. And we we actually attended an event together when we were talking about, this was at LSE and it was talking about a multipolar world. But they were essentially sort of looking back at the USSR and they were looking at Russia and they're saying, oh, well, it's a bit of a joke. Russia was always a bit of a joke. Well, it wasn't at the time for many people. And I think that's the same sort of parallels I'm trying to get with when I'm talking about China here is China was heading, in my opinion, when I went to China in a very different direction to where it is now. It 
really felt like it was liberalizing, opening, albeit slower than other countries, of course. And there was problems with that, of course. And I'm not I'm not getting a, getting away from that for some of the points you've raised. But it really felt like it was the trajectory was, let's say, you know, aligned with kind of some of what the UK would want. And so that golden era at the time, lots of people were happy with the direction of travel. It's only in hindsight that there was problems because China didn't reform. It didn't open up in the same ways that we were expecting. And in fact, in many ways, it's gone the opposite direction, which is an enormous challenge. So when we talk about the golden era, you know, 10 years ago, that's a very different China. It's a very different UK-China relationship to what we have now. And so, yeah, the the golden era that, that Cameron brought in at the time, for many, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but for many was the right direction to travel. Now, obviously, for, for many, it wasn't. And and I think people have a very, very strong opinion on it now, like Ian Duncan Smith, like IPAC. And that's a very fair criticism. But at the time, China was opening up, China was reforming, and welcoming foreign direct investment was clear both ways. Yeah. There are many criticisms that should and will be leveled at David Cameron's engagement and activity around China by people in Westminster, especially around who's lobbying on behalf of, how transparent that stuff was. We'll find out in the coming days and, and weeks when he puts his first register of interests online as a peer, you know, what, what exactly is on his rap sheet, as it were. But I do think where the criticisms around the golden era fall short is that unless you were willing to stand up at the time and say this is not where the government's policy should be headed, you perhaps don't have the strongest legs to stand on now. And that that's fine. That's politics. But there's no need to try and be so revisionist in the way that we talk about it. We can see things for what they were, call them mistakes now and move on. And I, I'm looking forward to seeing how Cameron works in this space because he'll always have, always have to try and prove that he's changed from that golden era uh, approach. As you say, you know, Sunak mentioned in his speech last year as the like diametric opposite of what he wants to be doing right now. And lo and behold, he's hired the person that was doing it. So baffling. So James Cleverly, James Cleverly has moved from foreign secretary to, to home secretary. I'd just love to get maybe your assessment of James Cleverly as the foreign secretary, uh, maybe specifically related to his China, UK China role. Yeah. I So I'm a fan of James Cleverly. Let's give him a let's give him a a, a, a rating out of ten. Um, as a foreign secretary, I'd give him a seven point five out of ten, and when it comes to China, I would give him a seven point five out of ten. Uh, and this comes from my view. <laughs> this comes from my view that actually, as a foreign secretary, you don't have that much autonomy to create and you know, implement your own approach to anywhere. That's not your job, really. You're the chief diplomat. And there are people, you know, Dominic Cummings would refer to as the deep state or whatever it is. There are people who are actually directing where you're going. And that being said, I found I've always found James Cleverly uh, very amicable, very naturally diplomatic, clearly very interested in the role. You watch him go around in the Pacific and you can see high levels of engagement from people he's meeting. He's, you know, and that this might be in normal life, like a, a, a given, but in Westminster, it's not a given that you have a minister who cares about their brief or who's actually interested in learning about people. That's just not necessarily the norm. So I think on that, on that level, he deserves a lot of, uh, a lot of respect, actually. It's a difficult role to do. And I think some of the criticisms levied against him were just inaccurate. So I remember once attending a foreign affairs committee hearing where he was called the Chinese stooge by a Labour MP called Chris Bryant. Again, uh, frankly, a pathetic thing to say. Uh, in the same in the same session, he was asked why he wouldn't take the security minister with him to China. Again, 
what sort of question is that? That's not even a it's not even provocative. It's just like a silly question to ask. So someone who actually said they shouldn't talk in sound bites. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? It's like in this day and age, it's, it's really hard to work in foreign policy full stop because Westminster as an environment demands sound bites. It demands like snappy social media clips and it demands headlines. And foreign policy does not create those things, really. It cre- it's loaded with complexity. It's about human relationships and all sort of stuff. So I, I, from my point of view, uh, as a fairly nonpartisan person in this, I thought he did a, pr- a pretty good job, could have definitely improved in some ways. I think his I, I think he'd be perhaps the first to admit that his China literacy is still very low. Um, you know, you and I have spoken before about how 30 minutes on a podcast is probably pushing him to his absolute uh, capacity on China. And, you know, when you compare that to other officials, Penny Wong in Australia, Tony Blinken in America, that's not necessarily the norm. So I think he does still fall short on those spaces there. And I think he was, like many politicians, a fan of a, of a, of a slogan. But, you know, for what we can get, he wasn't, wasn't bad at all. Yeah, look, I would tend to agree. I would, I would also say seven to eight out of ten as a foreign foreign secretary, and I think actually he's been so successful as a diplomatic politician in a time where it's very challenging to do that. That's why he's been shifted into the the Home Secretary. I mean, there's other reasons, but that's also one of the reasons why he's been he's been shifted in. I think he's likable. I think he's relatable, um, and I think for a position in foreign diplomacy, he's he's diplomatic and not to mention he's also collaborative and i think you can see that with his kind of engagement recently around israel palestine bringing in david lammy i think he tries to get consensus uh before he goes out and say that and then i think he's also in a really challenging position when he talks about china there's a lot of people attacking him for going out there and i actually think he came with quite a strong rebuttal that you don't define a country by one word which is a threat or an enemy or a anything else it's far more sophisticated and complicated that than that so i think he walked a very tough line but actually found the right tone so yeah i think he did a i think he did a really good job at a very tough time i would agree with that i'd agree with all of that and i think um he set a, a, a fairly high benchmark for cameron to live up to and don't forget that he also inherited that role from liz truss and i think she inherited that one from I forget whether it was Dominic Raab or actually it must have been Dominic Raab and Boris Johnson before before that. There was a series. This is our fourth foreign secretary in four years. So actually, that's another point we should definitely discuss is the churn, which is bad domestically because civil servants have to now readjust basically their entire agenda around what the new foreign secretary is focusing on and, and is doing. I think we should also relate it back to China. Like, what does China think? Yeah, exactly. I mean, who knows? I mean, I spoke to a couple of officials about it at the time. Yeah. They were just confused. <laughs> Perfect. Like, I was confused. Yeah. So, Brilliant. you know, who, who, are you speak, who are you speaking to? You know, like, we'll come on to it in a minute. Teresa Coffey just went out there as a minister. She's gone. Yeah, I mean, exactly. I mean, the, the, the two secretaries of state who have visited China since Sunak became prime minister are now both gone from foreign-facing roles. And in, in Cleverly's place, obviously, he's now home secretary. In Teresa Coffey's case, she's retired. Well, she's resigned from, from government. So... Great, restart all those again. Brilliant, good timing as well. And in, in, you know, in Therese Coffee's case, she was out there to try and restart some of the conversations around pork, which is a massive industry we've we've got taken a hit here. So there are times in this in this job, uh, as you know, Steve, where you want to smack it off the table repeatedly. And I think today was one of the ones where you have to wear a helmet because you're going to smack your head so hard. So painful in that regard. Well, I think we, we. I mean, obviously, we are taking a foreign policy UK China angle, but this isn't aimed 
at anything other than the UK. This is a UK domestic issue that we're that we're grappling with that is repackaged with other headlines. You know, the headlines are David Cameron. He's the former prime minister coming back. I, I, I cannot remember a previous time of anything like this happening, anything similar than this happening. You know, this is a pretty desperate attempt of the Conservative Party to stay, I don't know, stay in power. And that's actually my, maybe far-fetched. It might actually be lose, but not lose as bad as they would have done if he wasn't around. They're appealing to more a centralist political lenient when, you know, there was genuine, complete disagreement in the Conservative Party. Do they go further to the right? Do they swing to the centre? Well, we've got the answer. They've they've, they've swung further to the centre, removing Suella, bringing in Cameron. This is a domestic issue around an election rather than anything foreign policy related. I unfortunately agree, Steve. Uh, Despite our best efforts, foreign policy is not the thing that sets the tone for general elections here, let alone reshuffles. So obviously, as you say, we're we're speaking about this from a UK-China bilateral perspective, but many other podcasts and many other analyses will will look at it very differently. It's just purely from the loss in terms of the bilateral from our side. So let's move on then to what was going to be some of the focus of our uh, original podcast. We wanted to touch upon Theresa Coffey, who was the former Secretary of State for DEFRA, which is uh, the Environment and Food and Rural Affairs uh, Ministry going out to China. There's also the CIIE conference, which took place last week in China. So we wanted to kind of touch upon a few things. So CIIE is the Import Expo, which is hosted in Shanghai. This is essentially C's pet project to improve foreign investment. And actually, I always think this, the whole premise is just a very bizarre and you'd never have this in any other country. This is an import expo where countries that are already importing showcase what they're doing in the country. Normally, you'd have an export expo where you're looking to go outbound. But Essentially, this is a really symbolic event where China is saying that we're open for foreign investment and why it's so important. And it comes back down to kind of some of the conversations we've had previously on this podcast. It's all around government to business relations. The businesses that kind of put the expos up, they don't get much business return on investment from their from their booth. It's all about the government engagement. They get to engage with provincial leaders heavyweight leaders within the Chinese system. They come around, they engage. And China is based on Guanxi, it's based on these relations, which, you know, it, it WTO rules suggest it shouldn't be, but it is. It, it really is important to, to engage with the government. And that's why it's so, so important at the, the CIIE conference. So we've had some insight from on the ground. The new trade commissioner, Lewis Neal, who we mentioned a few weeks ago, and Matt Burney, the new consulate general from Shanghai, have been very busy because lots of the businesses are coming out. They're signing MOUs. There seems to be an enormous agribusiness, life science focus. So we've seen that, you know, the big companies, AstraZeneca, GSK, Smith & Nephew, um, Hallion, all looking to kind of double down, re-engage in, in China. So I suppose, Sam... <laughs> Any thoughts on the, the CIE conference? Any kind of headlines that kind of jump out to you? My my only observations of it actually were two things. First of all, I saw the American ambassador to China was out there and he was talking about how he was particularly proud that the Americans had the largest foreign delegation at the uh, CIIE, which you know speaks to the fact of where their conversation is around China compared to ours. You can't really imagine 
Caroline Wilson going there and saying how proud she was to have a large delegation of companies out there and that not being slaughtered in the press here. So that's an interesting observation, I think, from, from that sort of perspective. The second was obviously, as you as you sort of mentioned, Therese Coffey was present for, for a couple of those uh, sort of panels and events and not, not on a panel herself, but speaking at those booths. Again, that wasn't really picked up in the UK media. You would think it would be of interest that our second cabinet secretary has gone out there, given the sort of media interest around UK China and appeared at, you know, as you described, like she's darling uh, expo, but wasn't really picked up at all. And I think, that, you know, to their absolute credit, the people that revealed that she was going to China to begin with was Farmers Weekly, who were all over it. Because as I say, the pork exports is so important to them and to their constituent readers that, and that's what Therese Coffey has been lobbied hard on, both from industry and from actually the DEFRA Select Committee have been pushing for her to sort of renegotiate and restart those conversations too. I think actually probably Caroline Wilson uh, would have been pretty proud in regards to kind of standing up for British businesses and standing up for some of the positive aspects of UK-China relations. And we definitely saw that through some of the comms that came out of the embassy, but also came out of Lewis, who's who's the new trade commissioner. Um, so, so that's one thing to flag. And I think also coming back to, to, to Theresa Coffey, the news has just com- completely been turned up on its head um, in regards to what's just happened with the cabinet re- reshuffle where she's no longer a minister. But I think it's quite I think it was quite an important statement that we sent a minister to CIE specifically when there was an agribusiness uh, focus. She was essentially sent out to kind of break down, combat some of the market access barriers around pork. Nothing came of it specifically, but conversations did. And that means quite a lot in the in the Chinese system. So I think a couple of things which are kind of a moot point now because she's been removed from her position and because there's different news. But a minister did go out on the back of more ministers previously on in the year. She probably took a look at her and her team, took a look at China, the vibrancy of the opportunities taking place in the market. I think that's really important. And my understanding from speaking to a lot of the businesses, the exporters genuinely felt heard in regards to some of the market access issues and how they could be overcome for benefit for the UK. So this is when you look at the business aspects of things. Yes, the politics tie into it. But if it's got right, if we have small little tweaks, it would make an enormous difference to sort of UK business. And I think they really appreciate that a minister took it seriously. Now, she's not the minister. So <laughs> I, I don't know what that I don't know what comes of the meeting. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, actually, we were considering having her on the podcast this week. But, you know, <laughs> things change yeah. on a UK perspective. And we kind of talk about what this means from a China perspective. I, I just I can't. I mean, everyone in the UK is sort of shaking their head saying, I don't know what this means. Well, China's doing the exact same thing. You know, they've just met with two ministers who are no longer in position. Who are they speaking to tomorrow? You know, it's it's a very, very challenging uh, relationship when you when you think about it from the flip side. How on earth do you deal with this country when you don't know who you're speaking to the next week? And that's sort of a joke, but, you know, because we did have consistency for years, but for the last five, six, seven years, we haven't had consistency. And there has been a rotational door of ministers and there's been a rotational door of policy. So it's a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. It's a challenge, not just in this bilateral, but in every single UK X bilateral, because you invest a lot of time in building up these relationships with ministers and their staff, and you get to know what they're interested in. And then all of a sudden, they've reshuffled again. And one of the one of the good things that's emerged today in terms of consistency is that Anne-Marie Trevelyan, the Indo-Pacific minister, has retained, as far as we know right now, going to press at quarter past nine in the evening on a Monday, she's retained her position, which is great because she has been a absolutely prolific official in the Indo-Pacific 
visiting Australia, visiting multiple Southeast Asian nations frequently, building those relationships at a really essential time for our Indo-Pacific push and to show that we have a sort of consistent approach towards it. So if she had gone, that would have been very concerning, I, I think. That would have been too much change on the Asia-Pacific portfolio. So thankfully, as we record this, she is still in position from a UK perspective. Well, also, Steve, while we're talking about this sort of thing, last week I saw a screenshot start to circulate on Twitter, which looked like an invitation to appear or, or be a guest at an event in America where a high-ranking Chinese official was present. And I think they were, the, the tickets were like $2,000 or $4,000. And it was quickly identified that none other than Xi Jinping would be that that sort of special guest. So what what is going on? Why is she in America right now? What, what's What's going on there? US-China relations really have been getting off track. There's been lots of conversations about gearing up to a war in Taiwan. Now, we don't know where they sit, but there needs to be a toning down of the rhetoric. And the most important countries when it comes to China are China, obviously, and the US. Um, so this is so important that the bilateral between Biden and Xi is taking place. This is on the back of what's just happened in regards to Premier He met the US Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, essentially concluding two days of commitments to deep communications, collaborations, all this stuff. But that's really important because that sets up a lot of the meeting, which is about to take place between Xi and Biden on the sidelines of an APEC summit. Um, why is it so important? Because it's signaling to the rest of the world. Why is it so important? Because these are the two most important countries on the planet. Um, and they really do hold so much geopolitical power. So we don't know what's going to come out. Maybe very little will come out. Uh, maybe a lot will come out. But it's also just a toning down of pretty dire rhetoric that was coming out between the two of them. I think it's interesting, actually, when you take a step back and look at all the Five Eyes countries, Canada, Australia, America, obviously the UK and New Zealand, where their respective governments are in terms of their communications and strategies with China. America obviously sets the tone on a lot of them because it can afford to be the most extreme in its language and its rhetoric. But, you know, it looks like by and large, there's a concerted effort to, as you say, step back from the brink, as it were, which I suspect the Chinese side is also keen to do. Again, I'm not in with what they're thinking, obviously. But I, I do think that there'll be lots of criticism of President Biden for for this, because there'll be lots of people saying, well, where are the trade-offs? You know, it looks like you're willing to talk about engagement and commercial ties, uh, but you're not actually willing to do X, Y, Z, blacklist these companies, be stricter on these export controls, whatever it is. I, I honestly do think, though, for as long as we have uh, fictitious relationships with China, we will have these conversations. There will almost never be any solution that makes as many people as possible happy. That makes sense. So I think it's a concerted effort across all of them. And funnily enough, I think David Cameron arriving back in at this time is an interesting time for him to arrive. Because actually, I think, you know, we talked about the beginning of the podcast. This is almost harking back to a world that he's familiar with. Yeah. Before we did this podcast, this emergency pod, we put out a bat signal for questions and queries that you may have. So Steve, the first question we had come in was, to what extent will David Cameron influence the UK's China policy? Very little. I think the China policy has been quite clearly set. I think there's large proportions of the Conservative Party, Labour Party, are very aligned with a, I'm going to call it bronze-plated era. So I don't think much is going to change from David Cameron. Fair enough. I concur. I think people often overestimate how much uh, autonomy a foreign secretary has to set the agenda on foreign policy. It comes from a different part of Westminster's apparatus. 
But I do think where it could be difficult is if enough momentum builds behind parliamentary and political interest in David Cameron's work since leaving Downing Street on China, that he's asked some pretty difficult and awkward questions. I think that's a an outcome that no one can really characterize properly yet, but worth keeping an eye on. We also got our Sam, that if the Conservative Party do win the next election, will David Cameron stay as Foreign Secretary? And then there, will there be a foreign policy beyond what is in the next year? So what would his UK-China policy be? So my answer is, if they do win the next election, on the minority chance they do win the next election, I suspect he would stay in the position for another year as consistency and continuity. But I don't see any massive deviation from the integrated review refresh approach to China and the current protect, align and engage. I just don't see him having the political capital, actually, to you know, steamroll his new Cameron 2.0 UK-China policy. What about you, Steve? I think it's a, a one and done thing. I think he's here to bring stability to the party in regards to losing, but not losing as bad as they would have done under whatever leadership, under what other system they would have had. I don't, I think it's very, very challenging to see a Conservative Party win. I think it's very, very difficult, as you said, to see a different foreign policy under anyone different. You know, it doesn't matter who it is. Yeah, fair enough. And I guess the final question I actually got asked was, uh, so someone earlier on was asking me, we went through this sort of roundabout way of saying, um, can you still hold a Lord accountable? You know, can he still come before the Commons and stuff like that? And the answer I wanted to just sort of put on record is, yeah, just because David Cameron is a is now a Lord rather than an MP, he can still be held accountable via uh, a minister in his office in the House of Commons, and he will still be expected to come before the Foreign Affairs Committee and also to answer questions in uh, the House of Lords too. He doesn't get to wash his hands of any sort of um, responsibilities or accountability at all. So I just want to put that one to bed. Uh, it'll be interesting, but it's not it's not as difficult as it's made out to be by some by some of the commentators right now. Cool. Well, look, on that thought, I will speak to you next week. We've got a fascinating session coming up on some stuff around Xinjiang and Islamophobia and a wider conversation around where we are right now. Let's see what the news looks like then. Mm-hmm.